Thank you, brother. Take your copy of the book of God and open it, please, to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. And as you're turning, I want to express my gratitude to you for uh, a number of things. Um, First, the hospitality and having me here, the invitation to be here. Um, I've been on 100 airplanes a year for about 23 years now, preached in 46 states. My first time to Stephenville, uh, preached a number of places around the state, but the first time here, and it is, uh, uh, it's a great honor to be here. Um, so thank you for that. Also, uh, I want to bring greetings to you from my boss, Dr. Al Moeller, the president of your seminary in Louisville, and I know he would want me uh, to do that. Also, I know he'd want me to extend our thanks to you for your church's gifts to the cooperative program. Every time you give to this church, a portion of the money decided by the church makes its way to the Southern Baptist Cooperative Program. Many would not know that that money first uh, goes to the uh, Southern Baptist Convention of Texas. In most cases, that goes into the state convention, the church uh, the state convention, then it's in its annual session, will vote and uh, uh, determine how much money stays in the state and how much money goes on. Uh, most churches, most state conventions, rather, it's about half and half. In other words, about half the money stays in the state, helps plant churches in your state, helps do work on college ministries, uh, college campuses in the state. But uh, then the rest of the money goes on uh, to the central fund, we might call it, of the cooperative program uh, in Nashville. And eventually churches, uh, money from 45,000 churches do that. Some directly to the cooperative program in Nashville, some through the state convention. Uh, but that money eventually makes its way there. And then in the annual session of the Southern Baptist Convention every year, which is in June and in Dallas this year, the messengers from the churches vote on the budget for the whole Southern Baptist Convention. And historically, our budget is divided up. 50% goes to our more than 3,500 uh, or 4,500 foreign missionaries in 185 countries of the world. That's supplemented each year through the Lottie Moon Christmas offering. 25% of the budget of the Southern Baptist Convention historically goes to our more than 5,000 home missionaries in all 50 states through the North American Mission Board. And that's supplemented in many churches at, at around Easter time with the Annie Armstrong offering. But then, getting more to the point, 20% of the budget of the Southern Baptist Convention goes to your six Southern Baptist seminaries, the oldest and largest of which I'm privileged to teach on your behalf in Louisville, Kentucky. And what that means is, Money given from this church eventually makes its way there and greatly reduces the costs of the students who go there. I've preached in seminaries where it costs the students 10 times what it costs Alan Day from your church. Now, the costs are about the same. Salaries are approximately the same. The electricity costs the same. But the cost for students like Alan Day and others, Jeff who came from there, Edward who was there, it, 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 10 times less than it is in many other seminaries 
because there are 45,000 churches like this one banding together through the cooperative program to help reduce the cost for those students. And that means God can call someone from this church to be a pastor, to be a missionary, to be a worship leader, to be a biblical counselor, to be a women's ministry leader. And they can get the best seminary education in the world for a fraction of the cost that it would somewhere else. Though they don't have a lot of money, they can get the best seminary education in the world because there are 45,000 churches just like this one helping to make that possible. All of which is to say, thank you for paying my salary. And I also want to express my thanks to your pastor and to Jessica for their hospitality. You would be proud of how they've taken care of me and uh, how they fed me and uh, all the courtesies they've given to me. Uh, Like I said, I'm in a different church almost every Sunday and I rarely am treated as well as I've been treated at the hands of your pastor. And you take care of him because if you don't, we'd be delighted to have him back in Louisville. Uh, Believe me, uh, we would. And so uh, I know he's been here five years. He's done a great work, and uh, but don't take him for granted. Uh, there aren't many men of the quality that you have, so uh, don't don't take them for granted. You take care of them because I'm, I mean it. We'd love to have him back in Louisville, but the reason we exist there at the seminary is not to keep them all there, but to send them out into the churches, right, like this. Uh, I've had Alan Day from your church in my class. We go to the same church. Love to have, keep him around in Louisville, but the purpose is to train him and send him out for the sake of the kingdom. And so uh, that's what we do there. But it's a great privilege and honor to serve on your behalf there. And so thank you uh, for that support and for the kindnesses to me while here. Well, there's a wonderful promise in Romans chapter 8, verse 31, where the Bible says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us. How do you know whether God is for you or not? That's a very important question when you consider that the alternative is that God is against you. And if God is against you, there isn't much hope, is there? So how do you know whether God supports you or whether he does not? If you want to get married and nothing ever works out, does that mean God is against you? And if you marry the person of your dreams, does that mean God is for you? What if you're unable to have children? Does that mean God is against you? And what if you have many wonderful children and they all turn out well? Does that mean that God is for you? What if that marriage breaks apart? Does that mean God is against you? If you lose your job or you can't get a job, does that mean God is against you? And what if you have unprecedented job success? Does that mean God is for you? If you live in your dream house, does that mean God is for you? And if you can't stand the house in which you live, does that mean God is against you? If you're always having money trouble, does that mean God is against you? And if you win the publisher's clearinghouse sweepstakes... Does that mean God is for you? In the final analysis, how do you know if God is for you or against you? Well, in the final analysis, none of the things that I've just mentioned are any indication one way or the other. 
All the good things I have mentioned here have happened to those that God is dead set against. And all the bad things I've mentioned here have happened to those God is clearly for. So how do we know whether God is for us or whether he is against us? First of all, we know that God is for us because of what the Bible says he has done for us. We know God is for us as believers in Christ because of what the Bible says he's done for us. Not because of the changing circumstances in our lives, but because of the unchanging word of God. Now, there are two sentences in my text, Romans 8.31. The first sentence is, what then shall we say to these things? Second sentence is, if God is for us, who can be against us? That first word in the second sentence is if, and as one of your seminary professors, you know I'm duty-bound to mention Greek at least once while I'm here, right? But in this case, it makes a real difference, because when the New Testament was written, there were several completely different words, all translated in English as if, but they all had a little different shade. It's sort of like we've been told Eskimos have some 16 different words for snow. There's one word for dry, powdery snow. They have another completely different word for heavy, wet snow. Well, the Greeks were like that when it comes to if. But when we say it, the same thing in English, we have to put it in context. So a man might say, I'm going fishing tomorrow if it doesn't rain. So we understand, well, maybe he is. Maybe he isn't. It's going to depend upon the circumstances. But another man might say, I'm going fishing tomorrow if the sun comes up. He's going fishing tomorrow regardless of the circumstances. That's the word if that's used here at the beginning of the second sentence. If God is for us, but there is no doubt in Paul's mind who wrote this that God is for believers in Christ. But what convinced him that God was for us? It's based upon what he said in the first sentence, which is, what then shall we say to these things? And it was these things that made Paul stroke his beard and his chin and to think about these things. And when he did, he concluded based upon these things that God is for us. So the question then is, what are these things? The things that ought to persuade all believers in Christ that God is for us. Well, in one sense, these things are the whole book of Romans up to this point. But in the immediate context, these things refers to the things he's just been talking about in the previous paragraph. So let's look up there in verse 26. So for example, Believers know that God is for us because the Holy Spirit he gives to us when we're born again helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he, that's God the Father, who searches hearts, knows what the mind of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit living in believers, is. Because the Spirit within us intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. When we don't know what to pray, He prays for us. When we can't pray 
You ever been there? The Holy Spirit prays for us. And it says with groanings too deep for words. Those aren't the Holy Spirit's groans. They're our groans. Our just Godward groans that the Holy Spirit encodes upon those groans the very will of God. So you ever been there? You're so confused, you don't know what to pray. You don't know whether to pray this or whether to pray that. You don't know what you ought to pray. But you know, you really need to pray. Or in those times when you can't pray, your heart is so heavy, your heart is like lead in your chest, and all you can do is just sort of throw yourself across a bed and just, just cry out, Oh, God. You just sort of groan Godwardly. Or maybe you can't pray. Maybe you're in such physical pain. Maybe you're in such mental confusion and distress. Maybe you're so medicated because of surgery or something else, you literally can't put two thoughts together in your brain and send them to God. God is not in heaven wringing his hands thinking, what am I going to do? Bless her heart. Bless his heart. If they could just offer some sort of little prayer and have something to work with. Come on, give me something to work with here. I've got to have a prayer so I can answer it. What am I going to do? They've never needed prayer more in their life, and I can't help them. No, no. God is so good, and God is so great. Then in the worst times in our lives, when we most need prayer, and we can't pray, or we don't know what to pray, He prays for us. Look at your Bible again. The Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings. Too deep for words. You don't even know what to pray. You just kind of groan Godwardly. He encodes upon those groans prayers. And what does he pray for? He intercedes according to the saint, for the saints according to the will of God. As though the Holy Spirit could pray any other way. How good of God. When you most desperately need prayer and you can't pray. He prays for you. Paul had been there. He had been stoned and left for dead. He had been beaten so many times he couldn't remember how many times. He had been in such horrible pain. Just try to endure. Okay, there's another lash coming here in another second. He, he, he can't pray because of the pain or he's blacked out or whatever. The Spirit is praying for us. And Paul said, you know what? If God will do that, God is for me. But there's more. How do we know God is for us? Because of what he said for us. In the very famous verse, Romans eight twenty eight, And we know, and I just notice that, by the way. How do, how do we know this? We'll come back to that. And we know that for those who love God, not for everybody, but for those who love God, all things work together for good. Not for everybody, but for those who are called according to His purpose. It's been my observation, just as an aside here, that in recent years, Christians seem to be shying away from clinging to and, and, and encouraging others with Romans 8, 28. And I think I know why. I, I think we've been around people who kind of flippantly throw out Romans 8, 28 to hurting people. Or who uh, just kind of throw out Romans 8, 28 to people on the raw edge of pain. And disappointment and, and anger at God. That's not when you give someone Romans 8, 28. When they're enraged at God. Why did you let this happen? Why? Well, all things work together for good. That's the worst time to give someone Romans 8, 28. 
You don't give them Romans 8, 28 when they're angry at God. You give Romans 8, 28 when they have settled down there at the point of asking sincere questions. Why? I, I don't understand. Why would God do this? I need answers. That's when a right-spirited delivery of Romans 8, 28 is something precious to cling to. So we don't want to abandon it. Because it's one of the most precious promises in the Bible. And I've known people who will abandon it and say to people in some horrific circumstance, some terrible car accident, some great tragedy, I've actually heard missionaries say to people, I want to assure you God had nothing to do with that. What comfort is that? What comfort is there? What am I going to think? God was asleep when this car accident happened? God was looking the other way. God didn't care when my loved one died, when this thing happened. What comfort is there in that? The only possible comfort is though we may not know what it is in this world, there is a reason. And God is in control even in the worst circumstances in life because notice it says all things. All things. Even things which are evil. Things which we say, Lord, that is pure evil. And God says, Amen. You're right. It is. But I'm great enough to control even pure evil. You ever come across the Romans, the, the Old Testament equivalent of Romans 8 28? It's Psalm 119 91. It says, For all things are your servants. All things, even the devil. As Martin Luther said, yes, he's the devil, but he's God's devil. He's on God's chain. And as the first chapter of the book of Job reminds us, that though awful, evil things can happen to us through Satan himself, he cannot touch us apart from that first going through the filter of God's will. All things, even evil things, God Ultimately controls. He causes them, it says here, to work together with other things. For our ultimate good. And for God's glory. It's not saying that all things are good. This verse isn't telling us, put on rose-colored glasses as we look at evil things. This isn't telling us, we'll look for the silver lining in the clouds. Some clouds don't have silver linings. It's not telling us to look on the bright side of everything. Some things don't have a bright side. What this is telling us is we have a great God who can take even things that are pure evil and work them together in his almighty hand so that the final outcome is our ultimate good and for his glory. You take too much sodium, it's bad, very bad for you. Enough can kill you. You take chloride, it can kill you. You work them together and in proper amounts, salt can be beneficial. God can take things that by themselves are pure evil. But nothing in the life of a Christian can be evaluated by itself. Nothing in the life of a Christian stands alone. Standing alone, you might say that is pure evil. And God says, Amen. But in a Christian's life, nothing can be evaluated by itself because God causes all things to work together with other things in His almighty hands who can perform a divine alchemy so that the final outcome is gold. He doesn't promise we will see it in this life. But he calls us to believe that there is a time in which 
a Christian can say, and only a Christian can say, and a Christian can only say sometimes through gritted teeth and tears, that a day will come when God will make it plain, and I will praise God for the worst things that have happened in my life. Only a Christian can say that. Only a Christian can say it by faith. And sometimes we can only say it through gritted teeth and tears. Because it makes no sense and we can't understand it nor see it in this world. But that's what the Word of God calls us to believe. But remember who wrote this verse. The Apostle Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians... As he goes through this litany of things, and I won't even recall them all, he said, I have been beaten so many times, I can't remember how many times it's been. How many times have you been beaten for the sake of the gospel? 195 times he felt the lash of the leather whip across his back. 195 lashes. How many times you felt the whip across your back for the sake of the gospel? 195 times. He said, I've been stoned, and they stayed at it so long, they were sure I was dead, they left me for dead. How many rocks you felt against your head for the sake of the gospel? He said, I've been in danger from robbers. I've been in danger from my own countrymen. I've been in danger from the Gentiles. I spent a night and and a day in the Mediterranean Sea, believing I was going to drown. Many sleepless nights in pursuing God's call. Often, he said, in hunger. And he just goes on and on and on. He said, I've suffered more than any of you. But I've also seen something you haven't seen. Because Paul also tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 that God gave him the ultimate human experience. And we talked about this in Sunday school. The ultimate human experience. He was allowed, he said, it was... So exceptional, so unusual. I don't know if I was in the body or not, but God allowed me to go to heaven and see heaven. Unlike people in your day, unfortunately, I didn't get a book deal or a movie deal out of it. God wouldn't let me talk about it. But he said, I have been there. I have seen how it all ends up. I have seen how we will appear. I have seen the glories of it. You are called to believe it by faith. And until then, I was called to believe it by faith, but God allowed me to actually see it and then come back and continue to be beaten and continue to feel a whip across my back. He said, but I want to tell you something. He says it right here in this very chapter in verse 18, for I consider the sufferings of the present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Think about that. The sufferings of this present time. And he said, I have suffered far more than you. But I have seen more than you have. And I want to tell you that what I have seen makes all of this I've told you about. It's not even worth talking about. It's not worthy to compare. The sufferings are my sufferings are so high you can't even imagine it. But I want to tell you that the glory on the other side is is way beyond this. This suffering is nothing. And I've seen it. I've been there. And I want to tell you, that is the man who wrote Romans eight twenty eight, 
God causes all things, stonings, beatings, robberies, shipwrecks, hunger, all of this, he said, God works it together with other things. And in his almighty hands, he performs a divine alchemy so that the final outcome is gold. And the day will come, he said, when we'll do the unimaginable in this world. We will praise God for all of those things because of the glory given to us in heaven as a result of them. That's just the opposite for worldlings. People in the world, God causes all things to work together for evil if you will, for their suffering. Even the best things unbelievers receive in this world, they will, they will curse God forever for the best things that ever happened to them in this world. Because in eternity, they will, they will suffer forever and wish they had never been blessed because God blesses them and they don't thank God for it. God blesses them, they don't use it for His glory, but only for selfish purposes. And for all eternity, they will grieve over every good thing they received in this life. Because all the blessings they enjoyed in this world only made their sufferings worse in eternity. But our God is so great and so good, He can take the worst things that have ever happened to us and turn them into our ultimate good and His glory. What's the worst thing that's ever happened to you? If we had the time and the transparency to go around this room, I'm confident we would hear things that somebody ought to be put in prison for, or worse, things that you've never told anyone. And I've lived long enough now to barely live through cancer, the death of loved ones, some pretty hateful and hard things that have happened to me. And if they haven't happened to you yet, young people, they will. You will live to see people you love dearly die. You will live through physical pain. You will live through very hard and disappointing and evil things. But this verse calls us to believe. That God can take the worst things that have ever happened to us and bless us forever through them. And Paul says, you know what? If God will do that. He doesn't just promise to neutralize them so they won't hurt me anymore. I look forward to a day I get to heaven. I ha these memories will be gone. They won't hurt me anymore. The pain will be over. It's way better than that. He says that we will bless him forever because he will bless us forever through everything all that we suffered in this world. Paul says if God will do that, he won't just end the suffering. He won't just take the memories away. He will bless me forever and ever through the worst things that ever happened to me. And God is for me. But it's even better than that. Look at the next verse there, which begins what is commonly called Paul's golden chain. For those whom he foreknew, verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he, Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brothers, many made like Jesus. 
And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This passage tells us if you are in Christ, God foreknew you. And that means far more than he just knew about you in advance. It means we could almost translate it. It's a more intimate term than that. We could almost translate it as God foreloved you. He knew everything about you. Every sin you would ever commit. And he loved you anyway. And those whom he foreknew, it says, he predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. Predestined to be like Jesus Christ, not like him in his divinity. We're not going to be little gods as the Mormons believe. We're going to be made like him in his sinless, perfect humanity, reflecting the glory of God from every cell and pore of our bodies. And all those in Christ are predestined to become like Jesus Christ. Now, if the Bible said here we were predestined to be like angels, we would have rejoiced forever that God would make us creatures that glorious. Twice, twice in the book of Revelation, the apostle John, likely now an old man, has angels appear to him and he falls on his face and worships them. And they have to say, don't do that. Worship God. John knew better than that. John had a pretty good theology, don't you think? He was one of those closest to Jesus. And now he has walked with the Lord for all these years. And as an old man on the Isle of Patmos, these angels appear to him. And he knew better than to worship angels. You worship God alone. It's John who wrote Jesus saying, I'm the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. John knew you worship God alone. But when angels actually appeared to him, even in 15 watt bulb versions of their glory, he couldn't help himself. He fell on his face and worshiped him. He didn't reason his way through this. They were so glorious. He just reflexively fell on his face to worship any being that glorious. And they had to get him up and say, don't do that. And I'm sure he said something like, I, I, I know, I know. I'm sorry. I, I just couldn't help myself. And that's, if we were predestined to be creatures like that, we would be astonished forever that God would make us beings that, glor- beings that glorious. But folks, it's infinitely better than that. We're predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. That he, Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brothers. Many made like him. And those whom he predestined, it says, these he also called. With a call through the gospel by the Holy Spirit that can awaken the dead. The same kind of power that was used when Jesus walked into the grave and said, Lazarus, come forth. And if you hadn't said Lazarus, they all would have come forth. But with a power to raise the dead, physically dead, the spiritually dead. And he had no obligation to do so. call just like he did to me on that Thursday night when I was nine years old. I'd heard the gospel countless times growing up in a Southern Baptist church before then. But on this Thursday night, I heard him calling me, calling me in a way he didn't call the boys to my right, to my left that night. I heard him calling me as he had never called me before through the gospel. And he had 
No obligation to do that. I'd done nothing to deserve that. He didn't need me on the team. It was by His grace He called me with an unmistakable call through the gospel to come forth. He made me alive. He called me to Himself. And that's what Paul says that God does for us here. If we are in Christ, He called you and He had no obligation to do so. And he calls you in ways that other people never even hear the gospel sometimes. Millions in this world, billions, never heard the gospel. But you did. What did you do to be born in a place where you would even hear the gospel? Or if you'd been born where you were born 400 years ago, you'd be in hell today. There was no gospel where you were born 400 years ago today, most likely. God enabled you to be born in a place and in a time where you would hear the gospel. And then when his timing was right, he called you through the gospel. Now, anytime the gospel goes forth, all are called to Christ. All who hear may come. It's a sincere call to all people through the gospel. But his Holy Spirit comes through the gospel. And you hear him, you know he's calling you. That's not all those whom he called. These he also justified, which means far more than if we may say the mere forgiveness of our sins, as if we could even say the mere forgiveness of every sin we've ever committed in our whole lives. To be justified is to be declared righteous by God, to be given credit for having lived the life of Jesus. I want you to imagine that that this, this pulpit is the center point of a line that extends infinitely in this direction and infinitely in this direction. And so here we have minus one, minus two, minus three to infinity. And this is plus one, plus two, plus three to infinity. The forgiveness of our sins is to remove all of these. But do you realize they are infinite? Jonathan Edwards once put it this way, my sins are infinite. Upon infinite and multiplied by infinite. Because he knew that we never go one second without sin. He knew that we never have one word, one deed, one motive, one thought that is perfectly pure. That even in our best moments, our most self-sacrificing moments, you pull over on the side of the road to help some stranger. You get up in the middle of the night for a sick child. That even in our best, most self-sacrificial moments, there's some degree of selfishness. Maybe just for a moment. Maybe you're not even aware of it. But there's some degree of selfishness that says, well, i got to do this. I, I couldn't live with myself if I didn't do this. Or I hope someone sees me do this. I hope my spouse appreciates this. There's some selfishness in it, even in our most sacrificial moments. That we never do anything. Not one word, not one deed, not one motive, not one thought that is not infected to some degree by sin. Someone put it this way, if sin were blue, everything we said, every thought, every word, every deed would be some shade of blue. Some would be dark navy blue, some a lighter blue, but everything would be some shade of blue. The Bible puts it this way. Even our righteousnesses are as what? Filthy rags. We know our sins are filthy rags. 
But the Bible says even our individual acts of righteousness, when you choose to do the right thing that you ought to do, you say, this is, this is righteousness, this is unrighteousness, and I choose righteousness. Good. That's what you ought to do. In some sense, God is pleased when you choose obedience rather than disobedience. I choose, I choose obedience. Good. That's what you ought to do. In some sense, God is pleased. But even in our obedience, even our righteousnesses, when we do what we ought to do, the Bible says, that's filthy rags before God in terms of establishing righteousness because it's not as pure as Jesus. It's not as pure as his acts of righteousness. It's not as pure as his thoughts, his words, his deeds, his motives. If, if this water were certified 100% pure, how many, how many droplets of sewage in here would it take before you wouldn't drink it? How many droplets of AIDS-infected blood would it take in here before you wouldn't drink it? Just one, right? Though you could still certify it as 99.99% pure, you wouldn't even touch it. Folks, that's what the Bible says about our purest deeds, our purest thoughts, our purest motives. They are some degree infected by sin and selfishness and therefore unacceptable. And that's why Jonathan Edwards could say, my sins are infinite. I never do anything without increasing my guilt before God. Even when I realize I've done wrong and I try to fix it, I try to make it right, I do so with bloody hands, so I only increase my guilt. And what is the greatest of all commandments? God said is to love God with all your heart, right? All your mind, all your soul, all your strength. When did we do that? Never. So that means every sin we commit is a double sin because every moment we sin, which is every moment, we're also breaking the greatest of all commandments because when we sin, we're certainly not loving God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's why every sin is a double sin. Thus, Edwards is right. My sins are infinite upon infinite and multiplied by infinite but do you realize if you had never sinned in your life, you couldn't go to heaven? If all of this infinite sin had never occurred, that just brings you back to zero, to neutral. If our sins were all forgiven, but that's all, we still couldn't go to heaven. Because you have to go more to go, go to heaven than no sin. And we have infinite sin. We must also have perfect righteousness. And we have none. But there was a man, a man who came from heaven, a man who lived 33 years of perfect righteousness, who never broke the law of God, who always kept the law of God, who loved God with all his heart, all his soul, all his mind, all his strength, all his life, every moment, and not for one moment, even in the continual onslaughts and false accusations of his enemies, did every once just get fed up and just kind of lose it for a second, but get it under control again? Not for one second did he ever sin. But rather, every moment he obeyed God and loved God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. And therefore, Jesus earned heaven so is salvation by works oh you bet it is but not yours someone had to work for your salvation and jesus worked 33
three years for your salvation. Which to me was at least as difficult as what he endured in those hours on the cross when he endured the wrath of God for our sin. But for 33 years before that, despite the temptations of the world and the devil, not once did Jesus ever fail. He always kept the law of God and for 33 years he was perfect and he earned heaven. And that qualified him to be our substitute. So that on the cross, the great exchange takes place, as 2 Corinthians 5.21 describes it, that God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we, we the infinite sinners, might be zero, that we might be neutral, no, no, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. When you believe into Christ, that's literally what it means. We don't just believe things about Jesus. We believe into Jesus. You've heard of being united with Christ by faith. We faith into Christ. We believe into Christ. And once you are united with Christ, you are given credit for having lived the life of Jesus. Think of that. God looks upon you as though you spoke all those words of Jesus, as though you had the perfectly pure heart of Jesus, as though you had the perfectly pure mind of Christ. You get credit for having lived the life of Jesus. And on the cross, Jesus got credit for my life. And you know what that got? The perfectly pure Son of God? The atomic bomb of the wrath of God. That's what it means to be justified, not merely forgiven, to be given credit for having lived the life of Jesus. Think of that. And you know what? That's not even all. (laughs) There's more than that. For those whom he justified, we're told here, these he also glorified, made like Christ forever and ever, more glorious than the angels radiating, reflecting the glory of God from every cell and pore of our bodies forever and ever. And Paul says, what do we say to these things? Very next verse, verse 31, the one we started with, what do we say to these things? What do we say? He gives me the Holy Spirit who prays for me when I don't know what to pray, who prays for me when I can't pray. I never need prayer more than now. And he prays for me. And he takes everything that ever happens to me, even the worst things that ever happened to me. And he doesn't just promise to neutralize them someday so they won't hurt me anymore. He promises to bless me through them and because of them forever and ever in such a way that there's no comparison To the greatness of the blessings compared to the sufferings. And then, before the foundation of the world, knowing everything about me, every sin I would ever commit in my life, knowing all of that, He loved me anyway. And predestined me to be like Jesus. And then, though I was His enemy, though I was running away from them, though I I hated the things of God, though I was dead in trespasses and sins, He called me. I didn't deserve it, but he called me with an unmistakable call through the gospel, a call that awakened me from the dead and then gave me, me, credit for having lived the whole life of Jesus and his promise. And by the way, it's past tense here. In the mind of God, it's already done. He glorified me. It's already done. 
forever and ever, he's, desired, he's determined to make me like Christ. What shall we say to these things? Well, we could say a lot. But at the very least, Paul says, God is for me. If he will do all of that, God is for me. Well then, if that's true, if God is for us like you're talking about, why is my life so stinking hard? It sounds great in the church building on Sunday morning, but I got I to gotta go home after church, and life's hard at home. I've got to go back to work tomorrow. Life is hard at work. It sounds great, inspiring Sunday morning. What does it sound like on Tuesday morning, Thursday night? How does this work? Why is my life so hard? Well, life is hard because we do have forces against us. When it says, if God is for us, who is against us? It doesn't say there isn't anybody or anything against us. In fact, the Bible tells us the whole world is against us. Jesus said, if the world hated me, it will hate those who follow me. If the world hated me and I was perfect, you can be sure the world will hate you when you follow me. Being a Christian in this world is like swimming upstream and the current is getting stronger and stronger every day. Just, week, just this week in England, they let a little 23-month-old boy die. Though the parents said, please let us take him to Italy. We've got a plane waiting to take him. The hospital has promised to cover all the costs. He might live, even if he doesn't, let us give him some sense of treatment and hope. And the government said, no, no parental rights. We will determine whether that child gets to go or not. He cannot leave the hospital, even though there's a plane waiting to take him that will cost nothing. Our problem would be solved. It will be no cost to our country. But you can't take Alfie. The government will determine this, not the parents, not anybody else. Children are aborted by the hundreds every day in this country. <sighs> to be a Christian in this world is hard. The whole world sometimes it seems against. Everything you're for as a Christian, the world seems to be against it. And everything you're against as a Christian, the world wants it to happen. That's why life is hard. But not only that, the flesh, the Bible says, is against us. There's a part of us still, though we are converted and dwelt by the Holy Spirit, there's still a part of us called the flesh. Not, not our bodies. It's, it's a principle within us that still finds sin attractive. That still finds temptation appealing. And so, we often sin and knowingly do so. And in those moments, we want sin more than we want obedience. And even sometimes we hate ourselves in the midst of it and hate ourselves afterwards. Nevertheless, we choose to sin and we want sin that moment more than we want righteousness. The desire for that is called the flesh. Coming out of the sin factory that beats in our chest. And that we make choices sometimes that have consequences that make life hard. We make choices that leave scars on our relationship and scars on our bodies. And that can make life 
hard. And sometimes the Bible says in Hebrews 12, because He loves us, our Father disciplines us as His children, and His discipline sometimes makes life harder and more painful. So the world, the flesh, and the Bible says the devil is against us. If the devil was against Job, he's going to be against us. If he was against Jesus, he's going to be against those who follow Jesus. But what is meant in all this is that none of them can do us any eternal harm. The late James Montgomery Boyce used the illustration like this. So Paul has an old-fashioned scales in front of him. And on one side, he's putting those things that are against us. Who is against us? Well, Paul, the whole world is against me. Okay, put that over there, like putting peanuts over there. Put a peanut, plunk. Anything else? Well, yeah, this sin factory that beats in my chest sure works against me. All right, put that there. Plunk. Anything else? Well, the devil is sure against me. All right, put that there. Plunk. Anything else? Well, I think some of my teachers are against me. You know, my boss is against me. Put that there. Plunk. And then it's so the Apostle Paul throws the anvil of God on the other side. Boom! Scattering all of these. If God is for us, who is against us? If God is for us, who are they? Yes, Life is hard, but if God is for us, they can do no eternal harm to us. So what this means ultimately is because God is for us, nothing or no one can thwart God's eternal plan for us. Remember God's eternal plan, how it ends, verse 30, He has glorified us, it's past tense, it's done in the mind of God. That's His plan from before the foundation of the world for His people, and nothing and no one can thwart His plan. Your place in heaven is secure if you are in Christ. Because if you could lose your salvation, you would. You already would have lost it if you could lose it. He permits suffering, but he has decreed glory. And he will fulfill his plan. And what this means is nothing or no one can thwart that plan, can stop his eternal plan for you. If you are truly, if you're truly in Christ, you've fallen under some false teaching in the past. Those false teachers can't cause you to lose your salvation. If you left some religious group that now condemns you, they can't cause you to lose your salvation. And neither unbelieving parents, nor an unbelieving spouse, nor an unbelieving boss, nor any other unbeliever can so tempt you or confine you or restrict you from following Christ in all of life like you would want to that would ever cause him to reject you. And my brothers and sisters, when it says, if God is for us, who is against us? The who includes you. The who includes you. If God is for us, even the flesh within you that is against you cannot stop God. You did not get into his grace by your own efforts. And understand clearly what I say when I say you can't put yourself out of God's grace by what you do either. Now, anyone who understands that to mean you can profess faith in Christ and live any way you want and still go to heaven, is probably a stranger to grace in the first place. But rather, this is pastoral teaching, pastoral concern for that person who has a tender conscience and who is terrified that because of some particularly heinous sin in their past, 
because of some present sin in their life that they cannot conquer, that they're finally going to exhaust the patience of God. And though they want heaven more than anything, at the last they'll find that he shuts the door against them. This is for you. People who want God more than anything. They want heaven and salvation more than anything. But they're terrified that they've done something that will cause the patience of God to be exhausted and the door to be closed. My brother or sister, if you want him, you can be sure he wants you. You know what the greatest evidence is that he wants you? It's your wanting him. He put that there. You would not want him if he had not already worked within you, given you his spirit. Jesus said in the book of John that we, by, we love darkness rather than light. Those outside of Christ love darkness rather than light. But if you love light, if you're clinging to Christ and you're, you're pleading for his salvation, that's only because he's already worked in your heart. Because you know what's good in the first part of this, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Not only did he know every sin you would ever commit and he loved you anyway. It's even better than that. Sometimes, m- most of the time, I feel like Jonathan Edwards. I don't know about you. Most of the time, I feel like Edwards. I feel my sins are infinite upon infinite and multiplied by infinite. I'm so aware of so much sin in my life. But occasionally, occasionally, I'll look at somebody and think, well, I'm not that bad. I've never lined people up on a beach and chopped their heads off. I've never been a serial killer. I've never been a drug dealer. Never ruined lives like that. I'm not that bad. But you know what God knows? God knows not only every sin I've committed that I don't even know I've committed. God knows not only every single sin I've ever committed. God knows the sins I would commit but haven't if I just had the opportunity. He knows sins I would commit that I haven't because I haven't been tempted like some other people. Certain sins I haven't committed because I haven't been in their circumstances. I haven't walked in their shoes. God knows how much worse I would have been if I had been in their shoes. And he loved me anyway. So when it says, if God is for us, who is against us? The who includes you, my brother or sister. You didn't put yourself in. Praise God, you can't put yourself out. You don't want to put yourself out. Well, let me pull this together now as we... Finish thinking about if God is for us, who is against us. First of all, I want to call you to his example. Paul's example of what he did. We need to do this. I need to do this every day. To, to reason out and rest upon what the Bible says is true. Notice what Paul did here. He said, what, what do we say to these things? He gives me the Holy Spirit who prays for me. When I don't know how to pray, I can't pray. He takes everything that's ever happened to me, even the worst things that have ever happened to me. And doesn't just neutralize them someday so they don't hurt anymore. He blesses me forever through them. Turns them into my ultimate good and God's glory. Into gold forever. And then before the foundation of the world, knowing every sin I would ever commit, He loved me anyway. And predestined me to be not just like an angel. Predestined me to be like Jesus. And then when I was dead in trespasses and sin, had no interest in Him whatsoever, He called me through the gospel. 
and then predestined me, I mean, and then justified me, gave me credit for having lived the whole life of Jesus and is ensured for all eternity I'm going to be made like Christ. Now that is the truth. What do I say to that? God is for me. <laughs> what we see here is the need to, to, to reason out and rest upon what the Bible says is true. In other words, there are times when I say, the circumstances tell me this, but what is the truth? My eyes tell me this, what is the truth? I feel this, what is the truth? I feel like God doesn't love me, but what is the truth? Truth is what he did for me in Jesus. The truth is what he's done for me through the Holy Spirit. I feel guilty before God because of what I've done. What is the truth? The truth is verse 1 in this chapter. There is therefore now no condemnation in Christ Jesus. That's the truth. We need that over and over and over. I know what you think. I know what you feel. I know what the circumstances say. But what is the truth? Second. And the truth is, by the way, God is for you if you're in Christ. Second, when God is for you, He's for you forever. If He was for you before the foundation of the world, knowing every sin you would ever commit, you can be sure He will be for you forever. You have nothing to fear. Regardless of what happens to you in this life, everything, everything turns out infinitely better than you can possibly imagine right now. So don't doubt His love. The greatest of the Puritan theologians was a man named John Owen. And I was reading a book of his one day called Communion with God. I was reading long, hadn't done a lot for me yet. I was on page 13, I remember, and I read one sentence that turned my neutral heart into, dissolved, them, dissolved it into tears like a light switch. Here's the sentence. The greatest sorrow and burden you can lay on the Father... The greatest unkindness you can do to him is. How do you think he's going to finish that sentence? The greatest burden you can lay on the father. The greatest unkindness you can do to him. Is not to believe that he loves you. He gives you the Holy Spirit who prays for you when you can't pray. You don't know what to pray. He takes everything that ever happens to you, even the worst things that have ever happened to you, and will bless you through them forever beyond your imagination. Before the foundation of the world, knowing everything about you and every sin you would ever commit, every act of rebellion against him, and he loved you anyway, and predestined you to be like Jesus, and when you were his enemy and dead in trespasses and sins, he called you through the gospel to himself and gave you credit for the life of Jesus and is ensured you're going to be like Christ forever and ever. And you wonder if he loves you. What greater thing could he do for you to demonstrate his love? You think these, what would be better than that? Letting you win the publisher's clearinghouse sweepstakes? That would convince you of the love of God more than all these other things? So the obvious question to finish with is this one, is God for you? He is for 
all who come to Christ. But he is against all who will not. If you have tremorously, humbly said, Lord, I, I, I do believe I've come to Christ. I do humbly believe God is for me. Then my brother, my sister, be ravished by that. Rejoice in the, every bit of that. God is for me. God is for me. God is for me. God is for me. Take all the spiritual pleasure out of that glorious truth that you can. But if you haven't come to Christ, realize that you've made God your enemy. And someday, though you may look around now and say, well, my life is going pretty good. I don't know that I'd trade my circumstances with anybody in the church. I've not come to Christ, but I'm doing pretty good. You will discover someday to your horror what it means to have made God your enemy. And if God is against you, who can be for you? But if in this moment you will come to Christ, you can be sure from this moment that God is for you. Regardless of whether you ever get the spouse you want or the house you want or the job you want or the children you want or the education you want or the recognition you want or anything else. If you come to Christ, you get God. And if God is for you, who can be against you? Let's pray together. Oh, great God, as we sang earlier today. Oh, great God. How great and awesome you are. How good and glorious is your love and your mercy toward us who have been rebels against you. Oh, God, your grace toward us is unimaginable. Thank you for what you've revealed in your word. Thank you, Lord, for the Bible. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the Holy Spirit. I pray you would exalt Jesus in the minds of every person here right now. That everyone would see Jesus as irresistibly beautiful. May they want him like they've never wanted anything in their life. May those who have never come to Christ want to run to him in their hearts and wrap their arms around him and say, oh, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. May those who do know you find Jesus more infinitely beautiful than they've ever seen him before. Refresh their hope, rekindle their love in Christ and encourage us with the great truth that if you are for us, who can be against us? All this we ask in Jesus name and for your glory. Amen.